as we look at these last three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, we discover that these are, are the prophets that prophesied after the children of Israel came from the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. They now have come back into the land. It's absolutely destroyed. They're having to rebuild it from absolute scratch. And uh, it was only 50,000 out of all the millions of Jews, only 50,000 of them came back. They were there for a couple of years. God prophesied and said, let's build the temple. Let's build the house of worship. They started into it a couple of years, very slow, very discouraging. They finally quit because of the persecution and a letter came from the king of Persia saying, don't build anymore. For 14 years, it set. And then the Lord prophesied through Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai being the older prophet, Zechariah being the younger prophet, and said, God has said to build this thing. They physically went out themselves and just started doing it, a few stragglers, but it wasn't enough, and they had a word from the Lord. And they all got together. In September of 520 B.C., at the beginning of Haggai's prophecies, they got it together and started building. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that they came back into the land. It wasn't enough that they started building the building. God said, and this is where we looked last week at the first six verses of Zechariah, I want you. I don't just want you going through the motions. I don't want just you there physically. I want your whole heart. I don't want you to build a building. I want you to build a house of worship. I don't want you just to be a guy who's building a building. I want you to be a worshiper building the place of worship. And in the process of building the time, the place of worship is built, you have been changed. You have stepped into a new level of your own heart, your own life as a worshiper. And so the first six verses of Zechariah was return unto me. There was a prophecy in Jeremiah that said that very thing. After the 70 years of captivity, you will come back into the land and there you will call to me and I will answer you because you will call to me from a whole heart. And with that whole heart, as you seek me, I will allow you to find me. For my plans for you are not evil, but good, to give you a future and a hope. They were back in the land. They were going through the motions. They were building the temple. Year 520 B.C., 18 years being back into the land. And God is now saying, you're there, but not yet with a whole heart. And there they responded to the Lord and then we have the last part of Haggai the first six verses of Zechariah actually go in between verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2 of Haggai then starting in verse 10 to the end of the chapter of Haggai uh, is after that prophecy of Zechariah where God says if you now have considered your ways I, I will take my hand of curse away from you and begin to bless you and I'm going to do I'm going to shake heaven and earth and everything else I'm going to bring that place because I'm going to choose you put my signet ring upon Zerubbabel the leader of this group of people and uh, because I have chosen you and so today now we start with another prophecy uh, of Zechariah, which actually a vision, the first of ten visions that Zechariah had. Now, you got to understand a couple of things here. The book of Zechariah has some very practical things about the building process, but he also has a lot of wild and crazy visions, like the book of Ezekiel or Daniel or Revelation. A lot of these scenes that you're going, whoa, I'm tripping out on this. But you got to remember, it's the word of the Lord. So that trippy vision is the Lord's vision. And so 
in essence, you've you got to say, man, that's a wild and crazy vision. So into some part, you've got to say, God's a wild and crazy God. Because he's the one who came up with that wild and crazy vision. And you've got to remember, this is his nature. This is his word. This is his picture that he's painted. And so maybe it's out there, but it's him. Now, I also need to, to start by introduction by saying this. There are most often the times when we're studying through the Bible that it's just a wonderful story and very inspirational, and you, you just say, wow, that's so neat. It was fun to hear the story about David and Goliath or whatever, and, and it was fun to, to see the application to my life. But then there are portions of Scripture, like we're studying this morning and tonight in Jeremiah, that are not just, you can't just read them casually and, and glean from it. You have to dig, and I believe God's built it in that way, that the deep things of God are for those who are willing to dig for it. It says in Proverbs 2 that wisdom comes from digging for it like a buried treasure. And so I think the things that God is really speaking, especially prophetically in the future, is not just for those who can look at it in a glance, but it's those who are willing to dig deep and, and to say, God, I want to know your heart and your mind. Now, as we look at prophecy, like we're going to do here at Zechariah today, or when we're reading different glimpses out of Revelation or Ezekiel, you've got to understand that the whole Bible is one picture, and that each of the books of the Bible and each of the various prophecies within the books of the Bible are all pieces to the puzzle. So if you've ever done a puzzle and you look and you say, here's a red piece, there's no red piece in that picture anywhere, and there you look at the front cover of the puzzle box, and, and you, you look at it going, oh, there is a little red flower right down there in the corner. Wow, I didn't even see that. And you take that red piece, and what do you do? You put it over on the corner, remember where it's at, because you're going to come back, and you're going to know exactly how it fits in later. Well, in the same way, you're going to have little snapshots here, and you're going to go, where does that fit? But as you read Revelation, or you read Daniel, or you read the other Bible, you're going, oh, this is consistent with the other things that have been said, and I know where it goes. I understand where the placement of it is. So I say that by saying, today, guys, it's not some nice little devotional message you're going to walk away from. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps, and those who are really hungry for the Word and want to dig into the Word, uh, you're going to enjoy it. But if you're here saying, I'm here because my wife made me be, be here, or my parents made me here, you're going to have a, a really tough next uh, few minutes uh, because this is not one of those... Uh, nice, easy to listen to, uh, you know, classical music stations. You know, this isn't it. Uh, this is this is some stuff we got to dig into. So, you ready to dig? Verse seven. So, on the twenty-fourth day of the eleventh month. Now, this is three months after uh, verse one. So, now we're in the eleventh month. This is right around February, February-ish, according to our calendar. Uh, so let's say February 24th. It's really not, but just for our information station, it's, it's around in that, that period of time, which is the month of Shabbat. That's what they renamed the Babylonian name from, and I'm not going to get into the whole calendar, the Jewish calendar, sort of uh, taking part of the Babylonian calendar and working out their own new calendar that is after they came back from captivity they used. But in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah, the son of Edo, the prophet, and I saw by night, and behold, a man. So now notice the first part of this vision. He has seen it. We're going to get to verse 9, and the Lord speaking, he's hearing it. So this is rather unique. And like in the book of Revelation, where John is taken in the Spirit on the Lord's day and has this vision, he's actually, it's like he's there. 
So you say, well, what's a vision like? Well, they're different at different points. And some of these ones, like John had in the book of Revelation, it's actually almost like they are taken there literally. I mean, God outside the space-time continuum, we don't know all of what it's like, but it's almost like they're transported into the future to actually they're there looking at it, hearing it, seeing it, being a part of it. Like Paul said there in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, was it, whether I was in the Spirit or out of the Spirit, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but here's what I saw, and this is what I've experienced. So he's seeing this vision, he's hearing this vision, and here, notice, he, there's a guy on a horse, and it's on a red horse, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees, uh, we would say laurel trees, uh, and in the hollow, so down in the canyon area, and behind him were horses, another red horse, or, or a group of red horses, a sorrel, we're going to talk about that in a minute, and, and white. So whether it's three horses or a whole group of different colored horses, and those are the three colors, we don't know. So thus far, to get a picture, he sees a guy that stands out from the others, a man on a red horse, and then there's a group of these other horses behind him. And then I said, my Lord, what are these? And the angel, so first of all, in verse 8, he was called a man. Now he's called an angel. Uh, again, that word angel simply generically means messenger. This messenger talked with me and said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they, these guys in the back, behind the rider on the red horse, answered the guy on the red horse, the angel, the messenger of the Lord, who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now, you say, wow, are, is there significance to the red and the white and the myrtle trees and all of this? And, and bottom line is, is we can speculate, but no, we can't say for sure. Uh, the myrtle tree or the laurel tree, uh, it's mentioned about a half a dozen times in the Bible. And uh, many believe that it is symbolic of Israel or Israel in a time of struggle. So the Lord is saying, I'm in the midst of Israel during this difficult time. What about the red horse, the guy on the red horse? Well, we do know in Revelation 6-4 that the red horse very clearly was meaning red, in other words, hot with anger for war, and that guy on the red horse, the angel of the red horse in Revelation 6-4, takes away the peace from the earth. So it, it can uh, understand anger or, or uh, he's hot for war or battle. And then white, uh, we do have Jesus actually on a white horse, in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, and he's coming to earth with judgment and righteousness and to make war. So it's almost a symbol of purity, but not, not purity uh, in, in a sense that you might think of being pure. That's a given that God's pure. But saying he, even though he's judging, his judgment is pure. And his righteousness is the only righteousness that's pure and acceptable. And then in that same picture in Revelation 19, we're with him coming out of heaven at the end of the seven-year tribulation period back to earth. Well, what about this sorrel? Well, you know what? This is a unique Hebrew word. It's the only place it's used. And we really don't know the translation of it. Some have translated it reddish brown or speckled or brown or dapple gray or chestnut or dirty yellow or spotted or brownish orange. They try to find some root, and with that root, they try to come with some conclusion of what color it might be, but they all disagree on the color. And um, 
evidently it's not that important or God would have made it a clear, uh, he wouldn't have allowed the translation of that to be lost. So what is sorrel then? Well, we do know this for sure. It's a horse of a different color. (laughs) And uh, I do know that's clear. And it gets me thinking about that, saying, well, you know, God says not one period or comma would pass from his word. Nothing would be broken, he says, clearly, in the Gospel of John. And so I speculate, and and this is very, very speculative because it's me. Uh, You know, you read about somebody else's speculation, it's in a book. It seems more legitimate because it's in a book. But uh, this is not in a book. but as I meditate on this and look at this and go, well, it's, it's really evidently not significant what color it is, but it is a horse of a different color. And then that next phrase in those couple of verses, in verse 10 and 11, catch my eye, where it says he goes to and fro throughout the earth. Do you remember that statement? That statement is made of Satan. In Job chapter 1 verses 6 through 12, and also Job chapter 2, verse 2. Now, again, guys, I I can't explain it to you. I had somebody come up after first service and now explain that to me. I can't explain it. But outside our space-time continuum, things are not the way they are, the way we who are limited to space and time. But we have a picture in Job where God is having his angels come together and give uh, account of what's happening on earth. Now, again, you say, why is that necessary? Doesn't God know everything at once? Yeah, he does. So I don't really know why he needs these angels to go check things out for him. It seems that he already has that covered. But nevertheless, this is the vision. Now, as these angels come, Satan, he shows up too, no problem. He's at the meeting with the rest of the boys. Now, that really bothers me. But nevertheless, Satan is evidently at this point in time as an ex-angel, if you would, a hell's angel, he's able to show up at the heavenly meeting. And the Lord begins to ask him, well, where have you been? I've been going to and fro throughout the earth, checking things out. And then they begin to discuss Job, and then it says, and Satan left the presence of the Lord. We also have another unique little story that's found in... uh, 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 23, and this is another heavenly vision a prophet by the name of Micah had. And, and there, in this vision, he sees again the angels of the Lord gathered together, and the Lord discussing, saying, what shall I do with the situation with Jehoshaphat and Ahab? You know they want to go down to Ramoth-Gilead and fight, and, and this isn't my will, but what am I supposed to do? It? And it's, the angels are giving him counsel, and one of the angels, it doesn't say an angel, it says a spirit, The fallen angel, I believe, is a demonic spirit. And he says, hey, and so again, you have this demonic guy showing up at the meeting and says, let me go down and be a lying spirit in these prophets' mouths. These prophets who were trying to please a wicked king Ahab. Let me go be a lying spirit in their mouth. And God says, go ahead. So it's not just a one-time occasion. It seems to be that the demonic realm can communicate with the heavenly realm because, again, space and time isn't as we know it. You know, this is... 3,000 miles away or X amount of time to get there. Not so necessarily in the spiritual realm. And um, so is it possible here, very speculative, like I said, is it possible that this horse of a different color is one of the demonic angels, maybe Satan himself, showing up at this heavenly 
uh, picture, this heavenly vision. You say, well, why else do you think that? Well, I think that because when you look at the answer in verse 11, it says, well, what do you guys observe? And they said, ah, the earth, behold, the earth is resting quietly. Now that sounds like good news to me, doesn't it to you? Well, as you read on, God is angry at that response. He upsets them very much that the world is at peace and quiet. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But before we go on, I need to point out something else. What about this guy on the red horse in the myrtle trees? Then also, he's called an angel. Well, I'm just going to plain out say it. I believe this is Jesus. And I'm going to explain to you why I think it's the Lord. As we study through the Old Testament, we have various times when Jesus shows up and talks or deals with man. These are called, theologically we call them uh, Christophanies or um, Theophanies, the appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And sometimes he is called the angel of the Lord. Now I've got to explain to you why. We're reading this in English. So we see the word angel. It has one meaning, doesn't it? It's the baseball team up in Anaheim. No. It, we, we immediately think of the fallen angels, or we think of angels, a heavenly being. We think of a, a heavenly thing happening. But in the Hebrew, that word doesn't mean that necessarily. It can mean that, but it can also mean ambassador. It's translated that way, a matter of fact. It's also translated as king, and it's also translated as messenger. But when the translators of the Old King James decided to translate, they said every time we possibly can, we're just going to, instead of trying to figure out, should we say that's ambassador or messenger or angel, we're just going to say angel every time. So in their English translation, this is what they've done. And I, I think that was not a wise choice they made. But that's what they did. That is the choice they made. So you've got to realize, if you were reading this in Hebrew, you would probably look at this and say a messenger or an ambassador. Or, looking at the scene, you'd say, oh, it looks like it could be an angel. But let me show you, uh, right, matter of fact, take out your pen and paper. We're not going to be able to look at all of them. It would be too many. But take a note here that on numbers of occasions, it's very clear that that which is called the angel of the Lord is indeed God. And write down a number of them. Uh, Genesis 16, verse 11 through 13. This is a conversation that God's having with Hagar. But it says the angel of the Lord came and spoke to Hagar. But at the end of the conversation, Hagar says very plainly, I've been talking to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is a unique name, which is we call the Tetragrammaton. It's actually uh, four letters trans transliterated, Y-H-W-H. Um, some could say Yah, some say Yahweh. Um, some German scholars hundreds of years ago said, what if we took the other name Lord, the vowels, which is Adonai, and what if we take those vowels out of Adonai and put the vowels between the Y-H-W-H, what would that sound like? And of course, in German, that comes out Jehovah. That's how they got the name Jehovah. So it's a bad transliteration of the word. And nobody says that really, except Jehovah Witnesses and, and some old commentaries. Today we would say Yah or Yahweh. But nevertheless, she says, I, that's who I've been talking to. This messenger came, and that's who I've been talking to. Look also, you can make a note in Genesis 18. Clearly, it's God speaking uh, to 
Abraham. And so we see an appearance of him there. It doesn't say the angel of the Lord there, but it's clearly him. It's truly God. And then they have a conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 22, verses 11 through 12, there the angel of the Lord, while Abraham is offering Isaac, begins to speak to him. And then in the midst of the conversation, it's very clear. He says, now that I see you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So clearly, it's God who's speaking, although it starts off saying the angel of the Lord spoke or the messenger of the Lord. Or even a looser translation, you could say the word of the Lord spoke. Which is interesting because in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was what? The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so the Word is speaking. And there in also Genesis 31, Jacob has a dream and the angel of the Lord speaks to him. And then it ends by again saying, I am the God of Bethel. The angel of the God who is speaking says, I am God. <laughs> Exodus chapter 3. This is one that's very clear. Verses 2 through 6, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. But then, as the burning bush begins to speak, it says, God called to him from the midst of the bush. And then God said, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. And then it says, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So in, in, in Exodus 3, it says the angel of the Lord, but then clearly when it, the conversation begins to happen, it's God who is speaking, a messenger, the word of God speaking. A few others, just take a note of them. Genesis, or Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, you'll see that again. Joshua chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 15, there's a man, so a man appeared, stood with a sword drawn, and he says, are you for us or against us? He said, no, didn't really answer his question. And then Joshua fell on his face, to the earth and he worshiped and we know the Bible only approves to worship God and there was no rebuke and then he said the same thing that he said to Moses take off your sandals for this place is holy ground and then um, you guys remember the story in Genesis 32 where J Josh Jacob wrestled all night with a man and then finally he's losing he said I won't let you go till you bless me he said what's your name Jacob well now it's Israel which means governed by God and he says by the way what's your name he says you can't handle it and then Jacob was just in terror going I've seen God face to face and I'm still alive so he realized that person that he wrestled with all night that big giant sumo wrestler or whatever it was was actually God and then in Daniel 3 you remember the story where there's three guys Shadrach Meshach and Abednego thrown into the fire but then they see a fourth person in the midst and uh even Nebuchadnezzar in his fallen state could see that that was one like, as it were, the Son of God. And so these are pictures. And so I believe the guy here on the red horse is indeed Jesus. And I think it makes that clear as we go on in Zechariah uh, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long... Will, you have, will it be till you have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? So now this angel, this messenger, he cries out, I think it's Jesus unto the Father, which is a very common picture in the New Testament. Jesus talking to the Father and the Father talking to Jesus. Uh, there's the Lord our God's one Lord, but yet there are three separate persons and they do communicate amongst themselves. And so here he cries out and says, how long will it be till you have mercy on Jerusalem? So he's disturbed. Oh, there's peace throughout the earth. Everything's quiet. Everything's going great. And immediately, this angel of the Lord, this messenger of God, I believe Jesus, is disturbed. And he cries out, oh, Father, how long is it going to be until you show mercy on Jerusalem? 
And then the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So the father begins to speak to the son, good and comforting words. And the angel who spoke with me proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts. So now this person is saying, go tell them this is what the Lord of hosts says. So it's almost as if he puts himself as the Lord of hosts now. And of course, Jesus is that as well. And he says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. Now the root of that word zealous and zeal literally means I'm red hot. So now it begins to make sense why he's upon the red horse. He's red hot with anger or more, more clearly with passion, with, with a fervency, with an intensity. And he said, go tell them, I'm, I'm intense about this, I'm fiery red about this because I am exceedingly angry with the nations. Now the Hebrew word nation is the same word Gentile, it's the same word heathen. I'm angry with the heathen or the Gentiles or the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, talking now about Israel, and they helped, but with evil intent. So again, those of you who have been with us through the Bible, you know exactly what he's talking about. Throughout the Minor Prophets, the word came, as well as through Isaiah and Jeremiah, the word came, if you guys don't repent, I'm going to take you out of the land. And then finally it became clear. I'm going to raise up Babylon. I first I'll raise up Assyria and then later Babylon. And they are going to be my hand. They're going to be my rod of discipline against you. And of course the minor prophets freaked out going, you're going to use the wicked nation Babylon to punish your kids who are far more righteous than they? And God says yes. And so God now, he's looking at the world and he's saying, all the rest of the world is at ease Why Jerusalem is still struggling. Why the children of Israel are still going through such a hard time. And he says, it makes me angry that they have taken the spoil, that they've taken the riches of the Jews, and, and, and now they're fat and happy with it, and yet they're not lifting a hand to help Israel in their struggling state. As a matter of fact, they're coming against them. And he says, yeah, you know, I was a little angry, referring to Israel, and they helped. They were my rod of justice, my rod of judgment against them, but then with evil intent. For example, in Jeremiah 51:24, God makes it clear that I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. So they didn't just come and conquer Israel. They had an evil intent in their own heart, and they went beyond the judgment that God had called for. And there they tortured and raped and pillaged and did far worse evil to Israel than God had originally given them the license to do. And the same with Assyria. And God says, I'm going to judge you for this because of that wickedness that you've done. And then he takes a big breath and he looks into the future and in verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So not only will the temple be built, but also Jerusalem shall be built. Now, in the immediate, <clears throat> four years within four years, the temple was finished. <clears throat> it was a sorry sight compared to the Solomon's temple. And then, not too long after that, we have the book of Nehemiah, where God touched his heart, and he came and built the walls of Jerusalem. So in the immediate fulfillment, he's talking about the temple being built, and then the walls being built, and having some peace. But in the far fulfillment, 
He's talking about when he comes to rule and reign upon this earth. He will build a new Jerusalem, a new temple, and will rule there from that place. And in verse 17, again proclaims, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So God now looking in that millennial reign, saying there is a time that when you look at Israel, you're going to see a blessed place. When you think of Israel, you're going to think of a place of comfort. Do you think of that when you think of Israel today? Oh, that's a very peaceful, comforting place to go. (laughs) Quite the opposite. It's a war zone. And this is the way it was actually at this very time. The other countries attacking Israel while they were trying to build the temple and then trying to build the walls, the same thing. And God is saying, I'm telling you that I'm going to do it. I'm going to have mercy upon Israel and it's going to be a place of comfort and prosperity. I'm going to choose it again. And in verse 18, now comes the second vision. Then I raised my eyes and looked and there were four horns. Now again, if you've been studying the scriptures and all through the Psalms and all through the prophets, the word horn is looking like the horn of a bull or a horn of a ram, which is signifying where its power, its strength comes from. So in this society, when they think of horn, they think of power and strength. So he looks at four powers, if you would. Now, if you've been studying through the Bible, you know exactly when you look at four powers, what do you think of in the book of Daniel? You think of the four kingdoms that God said he would raise up, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and then ultimately the Romans. And this is probably what he's exactly talking about, because notice he says, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he answered me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So God is saying these four powers that came and they scattered Jerusalem to the four corners of the world and they oppressed them. And each of the four ruling empires did that very thing. Each of the four world ruling empires were against Israel. And of course, every nation in the world since then is against Israel to this very day. But then notice God's response to that. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horn. These are the horns. These are some other powers that scattered Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to terrify them and to cast out the horns of the nations and lift up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. So God is saying, these craftsmen are my powers to come and to scatter these horns. Now, if you at this time, understand the history. They had already seen the Babylonian Empire, and it was taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire, which is presently in power. But God said after that, there would be another power, the Greek power, and indeed it did take down the Medo-Persian Empire. Then after that, the Roman Empire, that indeed did take down the Greek, Greek Empire. But then the Roman Empire just sort of dissolved itself, and we know from the book of Daniel that it actually is going to revive itself, and that's happening today in the European Union. They're already coming together. And the Bible says one of the things they're going to do is have a one economic system that eventually will permeate the world. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. After that will be a military force. And after that will be a a world, world religion that the Antichrist will establish. But he's the one that's going to make this happen. And we already see the table being set for these last days. It's already happening. And then God himself will break with his angels that final Roman empire. But he says, I have these craftsmen and this is what we're going to do. Now, do understand that all power does indeed belong to God. 
The Bible makes it clear throughout that God raises up and God brings down. That God himself is the true final authority. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, it says, The Lord kills and the Lord makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes the poor and makes the rich. He brings the low and he lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the beggar from the ash heap, and sets them among princes and makes them to inherit the throne of glory. Uh, it also says in Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is judge who puts down one and exalts another. Very similar wordage in Isaiah 26, verse 3 through 5. Daniel says it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. For he changes the times and the season, he removes kings, and he raises up kings. So here are these craftsmen, God, are saying, that are going to bring them down. We actually got to see one of these craftsmen at work. Remember the story there in Daniel chapter 5? Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We know from history that his father, who actually was the king, Nebonidus, was out fighting the Medo-Persian Empire that was trying to conquer Babylon. But there he was in the security of Babylon, saying nobody can take on the great city of Babylon, and he began to have this party, uh, this mockery spirit against the Medo-Persians. And he said, hey, I remember in the archives seeing those vessels of gold and silver that my fathers brought up from Jerusalem. Go get them that we might worship the gods of gold and silver. They went and got the vessels that only the priests were to use. And as they were drinking from it, all of a sudden a hand appeared, and here's the craftsman at work, begins to craft into the side of the wall, Meany, meany, tekel your farsen. And it says that Belshazzar, that his hips were loosened. That's a nice way to say he peed his pants. And then it says his knees began to knock together. And it says he was so terrified that his countenance followed, his countenance fell, and that his leaders looked at him, and then they were astonished at his terror. So God says, I'm going to bring those craftsmen and they're going to bring those who terrify Jerusalem and I'm going to terrify them. And indeed, we see that. And then Daniel came in, remember, and he interpreted that. He said, you've been weighed in the balances and you've come up wanting. And this very night, God's going to take the kingdom from you and he's going to give it unto the Medes and the Persians. So God lifts up and God brings down. He says, these nations that I are allowed to, to come to power, but then they abused their authority and they persecuted the Jews. They persecuted Israel. They brought down Jerusalem and now I'm going to bring them down. Well, in chapter 2, keep your thinking caps on just a few more minutes. Then I raised my eyes and looked and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. This is sort of a common type of vision. Ezekiel 40, verse 2 through 5, and Revelation 11, verse 1 and 2, they have the measuring rod. At that time, they're measuring the temple, which is another story. We won't get into that. But nevertheless, he sees them measuring out Jerusalem. And there was the angel who talked with me, going out and answered the angel that was coming out to meet him, who said to him, run and speak to, notice, the young man. This is how we know Zechariah was a young man. You say, well, what's young? Well, sort of relative, isn't it? To the 80-year-old, he talks about the 60-year-old young man. But uh, whatever, from a heavenly point of view, Zechariah was a young man. 
saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as the towns without walls. Notice that phrase, without walls. Because the multitude of the men and livestock in it, and I, for I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So God's saying, go measure Jerusalem because it's not going to be like it once was. It's going to be so big that it will be without walls. Now, in the ancient's way of thinking, walls were that which gave it security. And God said it's going to be too big to put around walls and they don't have to worry about not being secure because I'm going to be a wall, like a wall of fire, all the way around it. Now, ultimately, the ultimate fulfillment is in the millennial reign. When God reestablishes Jerusalem, it's huge. All the land of Israel is given to them. Finally, the whole uh, enchilada that God said is your promised land. They're going to have it in that millennial reign as King Jesus rules and reigns. But it is interesting, that phrase, without walls. Why? Because we see that same exact phrase used in Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 10 through 17, talks about a battle I believe is coming very possibly before the rapture of the church. And those of you who know prophecy are very familiar with Ezekiel 38. But in verse 11, it says, when Jerusalem is without walls, is when this battle is going to take place, in particular with Gog and Magog, which is the area of Russia today, and then also it names a number of the Arab nations that will attack Israel. Now, I begin to look at the scene in which we're, we are right now with the world vision. Look at it. Think about this with me. We basically said after 9-11, we're not going to only go after Afghanistan. The president made it clear right up front. We are also going to go after any nations that are harboring terrorists or are partaking in any way, shape, or form in terrorist activities. We're going to strike before they strike us. And then the message was Iraq is basically making these type of weapons for terrorism. Of course, they're no dummies. They probably got them over to Syria and are hiding them out there. But nevertheless, we went to the UN and the UN emphatically said, no, you cannot go into Iraq and attack. And we said, sorry, <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. And of course, that really ticked off the world, especially the UN. But we've done that. They're all saying, you know, it's good that Hussein is gone, but what you did was wrong. That's basically the world's picture of us at this point. Now, what is the main thing in the news right now? Again, Israel is this tiny little spot on the planet, guys. It's the size of Rhode Island. It's the size of Southern California, but yet it's national news every single day. In your 16 minutes of a half an hour program, within that 16 minutes, all the things in the world you could talk about, there's a lot of big countries out there, guys, all through Africa, and then you have all kinds of other countries like Sudan and Hades and, and, and all kinds of things going on in South America. Did you know Brazil is larger than the continental United States? The country of Brazil, if you were to take the continental United States, I'm not talking Hawaii and Alaska, but the continental United States and added a Texas to it, now you've got the size of Brazil. But yeah, you don't hear about Brazil in the news every day. But yet you will hear about Israel. The world's focused in on it. And they're basically saying, because the whole world is against the Jews. I mean, that's a fact. You can go in the world and everybody has prejudicism in their country 
Like in our country, we have prejudicism with the, you know, the neo-Nazi type of people, the skinheads, you know. We hate the black people, and we hate what? The Jews. They always throw the Jews in. Any country you go to, it's the same thing. When I was over in Serbia, we hate the Croatians and the Bosnians and the Jews. It's like, do you have any Jews in your country? I don't think so, but we hate them. It's, you always have the Jews thrown in there throughout the world. And so here they're looking at this going, oh, look at these poor Palestinians, they're oppressed. And you can see on the national scene, here they're trying to work out this peace plan. Guys, it's not going to work. You know, our... Uh, our manifesto as our country is to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every single person, right? Freedom of all men. Well, one of the Palestinians' manifestos is the annihilation of Jews worldwide. <laughs> now, if they do, if, if the new leader can erase that out of their manifesto or their proclamation of emancipation or whatever it is, the thing is, it's still in their hearts. That's their thought process. We hate the Jews. We want them gone, period. But so here they're going to come up and say, here's the peace plan, and eventually the Jews are going to say, hey, we've got to pull the plug on this. And I could very well see Russia or some other country step up and say, hey, Israel is what Saddam Hussein was. It's not one leader, but it's a whole group of people. These Jews are oppressing the Palestinians. And they're not emancipating them, so therefore we want approval from the UN to go down there and do that. And I could see them saying, yeah, go for it. And actually having the world approval to attack Israel. I could see it now happening. Now the Bible tells us there in Ezekiel 38, when they do that, just like it says here, God himself is going to be a wall of fire to them. And even though Israel's is this tiny little nation and all of this multitude is going to come against them, Israel is going to win. And a matter of fact, Russia is going to lose five-sixths of its army in that battle. It's going to win. And so I find here again, maybe very possibly a mention of that prophecy elaborated on in great detail in Ezekiel uh, 38. I've got to stop and make a note here just a minute. I am proud to be an American. And one of the reasons is, in 1948, we were the very first people to say, we recognize Israel as a nation. When all the other nations of the world weren't willing to do that, we stepped up and said it, and then other nations reluctantly jumped on board. And since 1948, we have been 100% for Israel. We're not neutral. We're not Switzerland going, well, we're not going to say, you know, we're not really for we're not really against. We've never done that. We've never waffled. We've always stepped up and said we are 100% for Israel. Now, people say, well, it's because they're strategically located and blah, 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 whatever. We're for them. And the promise or the curse that was given to Abraham still stands in Genesis 12. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. It stands. And I believe one of the reasons we are blessed as a nation is because of our stand with Israel. We are for them. And when I hear, you know, Osama bin Laden say, you know, we're going to destroy the evil empire of America because they are backing up Israel. That's the reason. And the word comes from the Muslim world, don't support Israel anymore, and you have no problem with us. 
You won't have to fear terrorism anymore. And we step up going, no way. We are not going to back down from our support of Israel. And I am so proud of that. I'm so happy for that. And, and for a number of reasons, I believe that's the reason we have the blessing of God upon our country, even though we are backing away from our Christian roots. And I'm, I'm afraid if we back too far, much farther away from our Christian roots, we will no longer support Israel. And now we won't even be cursed because of the light that we've turned from, but because now we are cursing God's chosen people. And uh, that's a fearful place. And so we need revival on a number of levels for a number of reasons in America. Well, going on here in chapter 2, verse 6. Now God says, Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of the heaven, says the Lord. So he says to the Jews, It was me who allowed Babylon to spread you to the four corners, but now I'm telling you, come back now. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell on the, da- the daughter of Babylon. So you've been scattered throughout the world. Get up and leave because I'm going to judge that world that judged you. The world that injured you, I'm going to injure them. So get out of there. So remember, most of the Jews are still in Babylon. They're still in the foreign lands. And God's saying, get back to Israel uh, to this very day. Uh, there's a small percentage of Jews who actually live in Israel. Matter of fact, um, it's about... Uh, three to five times more Jews in New York than there are in Israel. So um, again, get up, go back to the promised land. God would say at this time, uh, not necessarily now, but at that time to the Jews. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plundered you, and he who touches you touches the apple of your eye, the pupil. They say the tenderest spot on the human body is the eye, especially the pupil of the eye to be touched. And God is saying, that's who they are to me. The tenderest part of my heart or my life is the Jews. For surely I will shake my hand against them and they shall become spoiled for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing oh, and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst, says the Lord of hosts. That is repeated in the book of Revelation. And right after that it says, and we as the church, we as believers who are raptured up with Christ are coming with him. Now, I love verse 11. Many nations, or Gentiles, or heathen, shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. Here's a picture of us who are coming with them out of heaven at the end of the seven-year period to reestablish life on planet Earth where Christ himself comes to rule and reign. And it's not just those who are naturally Jews, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their fathers, but also those who have been adopted into the Jewish family. Always great to have more relatives, huh? And so here we are. We are now children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by adoption. And I will know that the Lord of hosts, and I will dwell in the midst, then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Notice here in verse 12, and the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in, notice how the Lord describes the nation of Israel and its land, the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. That term for Israel, the holy land, is a term that the God gave it to it. The sanctified, set-apart place. And I'll tell you what, as soon as we get this building project behind us, we're going to plan another trip to go to Israel. And there's nothing like it. I'll tell you, we first go down to Galilee, and it is a very calm, peaceful place. But then eventually we go down to Jericho and the Dead Sea and then we come up the old Roman road and into Jerusalem and what a sight it is. And 
and being there, you can sense it. God has his hand to this day upon that land. It's his land, and you can sense it. And I know after we've toured Jerusalem and we're leaving and we're going down to Tel Aviv to catch our plane to come back, I fight the tears all of the way because I feel like, man, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving the place that God has touched, that God has chosen, that God has blessed, and you can sense it, that this is the place that God has his name upon it. And the Bible says that not only does God have his hand upon it now, but God's going to have it for his hand to dwell there himself throughout the millennial reign. Then after he destroys heaven and earth, he's going to make a new earth. And there he's going to make a new Jerusalem. And there um, it'll be to... Uh, live forever and ever, those who want to live in that place as well as heaven. Well, I want to look at another passage here quickly as it looks as it says, we are the people with the Jews. I want to look over to to Romans chapter 11 quickly, and then we're going to come back and finish up looking at verse 13. But uh, I want to close here and looking at a number of verses in Romans chapter 11 as we finish up here. Starting there in verse 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 11 I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. So have the Jews gone through this time of rejection of Messiah where they're stumbling and floundering that they would be done away with? There's people who say the Jews are no longer God's chosen people. The church has replaced Israel. No longer uh, does the Jews have anything to do with God's picture or God's life that was just for a season of time and it's over with. Not true. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Look at how anointed these people are. Even when they fall, they bless the rest of the world. How much more when they're walking right are they going to bless the rest of the world? In verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul says, I talk a lot about my ministry because that's where my heart is to see the Gentiles saved. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh, the Jews, and save some of them. So when they see God's blessing upon the Gentiles and their relationship with God and their love for the Jewish Bible, their love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, hopefully it'll provoke the Jews to want to know what in the world these Christians are talking about and that they would come to know their Jewish Messiah, Jesus. For if their being cast away is to reconcile the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the, fir- if the first fruit is holy, the lump also is holy, the root is holy, so are the branches. So they are indeed God's holy, sanctified, separate people. Still, presently, the Jews are. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, for you city dwellers, you may not know, but you can take a branch of a similar type of tree and with a razor blade cut it out and then cut a hole in the branch, uh, actually the the actual root system of of another tree. And that branch, you tape it on there, that branch will grow into it, but that branch will produce that fruit in which it came from. And uh, when I used to live in Bakersfield, we had a, a tree there in our backyard and from the same exact tree, we had grapefruits coming out one section of the tree on a few branches. and another one, we had oranges. And from another one, we had lemons, all coming from the same tree. Up in Fresno, they have a botanical gardens there. And somebody had told me um, that now from one tree, they have, I think what they said, it was 147 different fruits on one tree. 
So you can just keep, you know, having fun with it, grafting it in there. And so God is saying, look, it's the stump, it's the root, it's the root system that's holy. And what God did is took a wild olive branch, we're talking about olive trees now, not citrus trees, and he took that branch and he grafted it in, and so you are holy because the whole root system is holy, and there you are producing fruit because of that root system. But if you'd now take that natural branch that was cut out and set to the side for a while, hey, if a wild olive branch will take, what do you think about the natural olive branch? It's going to take. So remember, it's not the branch, it's the system, which is Christ. And notice what he goes on to say there. Um, In verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. They rejected the Messiah, God rejected them. It says in 2 Timothy 2, you deny me, I'll deny you. He has done that. But do not be haughty, but fear. So when you realize that God has said, if the Jews have said, Messiah, we don't want you, God says, then you don't have me, be in awe. Fear, this is a part of the nature of God. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, well, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who veil severity, those who have rejected the Messiah, rejected his way, rejected his salvation, rejected the light that he was given that they could follow him. Severity, they're broken off. They're damned at this moment. But towards you, goodness, because you by faith received the Messiah. If, he goes on, he does not appear there, if you continue in his goodness. So he says to us Gentiles, yep, you're grafted in, you're receiving the goodness of God, but if you continue in the goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. That's a heavy statement there. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So those who rejected the Messiah can now accept him. So just like they were broken off and they're set to the side, well, guess what? God can pick up that natural branch and graft it right back in and it'll start becoming fruitful again. But right now they're in a place of being cut off, of being rejected. For if you were also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. And if you were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, who the Jews are, and who what a Jerusalem is, what Israel is, what the Jews are to, God's, to God, what Israel is to God, that you wouldn't be ignorant, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Well, you know, here's what I think about the Jews. Here's what I think, you know, I don't care about what you think. What does God think? Don't be ignorant about what God thinks. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So right now, God is adopting all of these Gentile children. But eventually, God's going to stop the adoption process, and he's going to turn back to his own kids. And so all Israel will be saved as it's written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, that when I take away their sins... Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So right now, the Jews are our enemies in that they hate the Messiah. Let me tell you something. 
The Jews don't just say, well, you believe in Jesus, that's fine. You believe what you want to believe in, I want to believe in. You know, they're not that way. The Jews hate Jesus. They hate the New Testament. They hate that the Christians use their Bible. They really hate when you try to explain to them their Bible. I remember being uh, in Israel, and at that particular time, on that tour, I had our missionary from Hungary, Greg Opine, was with me. And uh, he was setting up in the front seat, and, and he said to the tour guide, who was a Jew, not a Christian, and, and he said to him, yes, uh, I'm a Jew also. And he turned around and said, really? He said, yes, my dad's a Jew. He goes, well, what's your mom? He said, well, my mom's a Gentile. He goes, ha, you're not a Jew. Very snobbily, he turns around, sets back down. Hey, well, what do you mean? He goes, look, according to our Jewish laws, your mother and your grandmother has to be a Jew. It doesn't matter about your dad. So we're there talking and thinking about it, and, and we realized Ruth is the great-great-grandmother of King David. That if you study it out, King David then, according to the Jewish law today, was not a Jew. And so we said, well, what about King David? Remember, his great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabitess. He just turned back around and sat down, and we saw the back of his neck getting redder and redder and redder. And after a few minutes, he got up and he just said, anybody that believes in Jesus should never be able to have any ownership in this land. Period. There should not be allowed one Christian in Israel. That was his statement. That's the way he really felt about it. And he had a gun. And so we just shut up after that. <laughs> but we realize that this is not a, a small subject. They realize logically it doesn't work, but emotionally they just don't want Christians. But then he goes on to say, but yet for election's sake, we understand. We understand God. They, they're rejecting God, but they're still God's people. And if they'll return to the Messiah, which they will. We know they will. In the tribulation period, the middle of three and a half years, they understand the, the Antichrist it was not the Messiah, as they were led to believe, but they will look unto Jesus. They'll look upon him and they pierced. And at that point, all the Jews worldwide who are alive will indeed be saved. So concerning election, they are the called. And in verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are my, you are my kids and your descendants forever. So what God said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will fulfill. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy in all. So just like, they, just like you were once disobedient and God received you, well now they're disobedient, and once they turn to God, God will receive them. At this point, Paul is just in awe. And he goes to a place of deep worship. And in verse 33 there of Romans 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. But of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's awesome. It's awe-inspiring. It blows your mind. When you think of the faithfulness of God, but when you also think of the severity of God. When you think of the justice of God, and you think of the mercy of God. 
when we try to formulize in our mind and we try to grasp the thought process of God, you just have to fall on your face and worship. Who, who can begin to touch the depths of his thinking? Who can begin to grasp exactly what he is going through or how he's calculating things? But he has told us plainly these things. And I am so glad that God does have an adoption process. And I am so glad that I am adopted into the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am proud to be a Jew by adoption. And I'm proud to link myself with the Jews, even though at this time they are blinded to the Messiah. Nevertheless, I know the day will come when they will look upon him and they pierce. Well, finishing up here, back in Zechariah, there in, in verse 13. It says there, be silent all flesh. And you say, that's the one we want you to do, Brian, right now. Be silent. Anyway, I will. Just another minute. Before the Lord, for he has aroused from his holy habitation. The word finally comes. Guys, God's getting up. He's standing up. He's getting ready to make all this stuff happen. And you better be in awe. The Bible tells us in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 that when you see the fig tree and the leaves coming on the fig tree, you know the figs are right behind it, so you know that when you see the signs of the times, you know that the coming of the Lord is very near, that that generation shall not pass away. We are in the generation where Israel became a nation again. They were scattered to the four corners of the world. They had no plot of ground. They had no ability to go back to the land of promise. God supernaturally made it happen. When I think of Israel being a nation, it just blows my mind. For almost 2,000 years, they didn't have a land. Now they're back in the very place where God originally said they're to be. It's mind-boggling. When I think of the European Union and it coming together now, and now they have the one-world system. I was just over in Hungary and Croatia, and that's what they wanted was the euro coin. I hated touching that money. <laughs> so I, just, I just know that this is the precursor, if you would, to a demonic system that the Antichrist is going to come out of. I, we're right there. And the Bible says, when you as believers see these things happen, realize that Satan is going all out. And what is Satan going to do? He's going to try to get you drunk. He's going to try to get you carousing, partying. He's going to try to get you to live a life after the flesh so you are not ready for the coming of the Lord that you're left behind. And that's why he says, watch and be ready. He says, pray that you may be counted worthy to stand before the Son of God in that day. In the last days, the Bible says that the doctrines of demons are going to flood the earth to try to confuse us. And then at the same time, it says there's going to be this spirit of the age where men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're loving money. That's their security. They're after the flesh. And the warning is to us as believers, don't let you be a part of that. And I say to you today, rejoice in the goodness of God but don't forget about the severity of God. Goodness upon those if they continue in the faith. Severity on those 
who step away and reject following Jesus. It's a wonderful thing. It's an exciting thing for us who are ready. Peter says, make your calling and election sure, so you are sure of an abundant entry on that day. Are you ready? Is your heart free? Are you just saying, come Lord Jesus, I have an abundant entry coming for me? Or do you have some skeletons in the closet? Do you have some things that you're ashamed of? Are you grabbing onto some of the things of the world and that may disqualify you to be caught up together to be with the Lord in that moment in the twinkling of an eye? Watch, be ready, pray that you're counted worthy.